Section 18. Metempsychosis, the Fragment, One of the Best, of On a Chinese Screen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Clifford. On a Chinese Screen by W. Somerset Maugham. Chapters 50 to 52. Metempsychosis. He was decently, though far from richly clad. He had a small round cap of black silk on his head, and on his feet black silk shoes. His robe was pale green of the flowered silk which is made in Jiading, and over it he wore a short black jacket. He was an old man, with a white beard, long, and for a Chinese, full. His broad face, much wrinkled, especially between the brows, was benign, and his large horn spectacles did not conceal the friendliness of his eyes. He had all the look of one of those sages whom you may see in an old picture, seated by a bamboo grove at the foot of a great rocky mountain, contemplating the eternal way. But now his face bore an expression of great annoyance, and his kindly eyes were frowning, for he was engaged in the singular occupation, for a man of his appearance, of leading a little black pig along the causeway between the flooded paddy fields. And the little black pig, with sudden jerks, with unexpected dodging, ran hither and thither in every direction but that in which the old gentleman wished to go. He pulled the string violently, but the pig, squealing, refused to follow. He addressed it in terms of expostulation and of abuse, but the little pig sat on his haunches and looked at him with malicious eyes. Then I knew that in the Tang dynasty the old gentleman had been a philosopher who had juggled with facts as philosophers will, making them suit the whims which he called his theories, and now, after who knows how many existences, he was expiating his sins in suffering in his turn the stubborn tyranny of the facts which he had outraged. THE FRAGMENT when you travel in China, I think nothing amazes you more than the passion for decoration which possesses the Chinese. It is not astonishing that you should find decoration in memorial arches or in temples. Here the occasion for it is obvious, and it is natural enough to find it in furniture, nor does it surprise, though it delights you, to discover it on the commoner objects of household use. The pewter pot is enriched with a graceful design. The coolie's rice-bowl has its rough but not inelegant adornment. You may fancy that the Chinese craftsman does not look upon an article as complete, till by line or colour he has broken the plainness of a surface. He will even print an arabesque on the paper he uses for wrapping. But it is more unexpected when you see the elaborate embellishment of a shop-front, the splendid carving, gilt or relieved with gold, of its counter, and the intricate sculpture of the signboard. It may be that this magnificence serves as an advertisement, but it does so only because the passer-by, the possible customer, takes pleasure in elegance, and you are apt to think that the tradesman who owns the shop takes pleasure in it too. When he sits at his door, smoking his water-pipe, and through his great horn spectacles reading a newspaper, his eyes must rest with good humour sometimes on the fantastic ornamentation. On the counter, in a long-necked pot, stands a solitary carnation. 
You will find the same delight in the ornate, in the poorest villages, where the severity of a door is mitigated by a charming piece of carving, and where the trellis of the windows forms a complicated and graceful pattern. You can seldom cross a bridge, in however unfrequented a district, without seeing in it the hand of an artist. The stones are so laid as to make an intricate decoration, and it seems as though these singular people judged with a careful eye whether a flat bridge or an arched one would fit in best with the surrounding scene. The balustrade is ornamented with lions or with dragons. I remember a bridge that must have been placed just where it was for the pure delight of its beauty, rather than for any useful purpose, since, though broad enough for a carriage and pair to pass over it, it served only to connect a narrow path that led from one ragged village to another. The nearest town was thirty miles away. The broad river, narrowing at this point, flowed between two green hills, and nut-trees grew on the bank. The bridge had no balustrade. It was constructed of immense slabs of granite, and rested on five piers. The middle pier consisted of a huge and fantastic dragon, with a long and scaly tail. On the sides of the outer slabs, running the whole length of the bridge, was cut in very low relief a pattern of an unimaginable lightness, delicacy, and grace. But though the Chinese take such careful pains to avoid fatiguing your eye, with sure taste making the elaborateness of a decoration endurable by contrasting it with a plain surface, in the end weariness overcomes you. Their exuberance bewilders. You cannot refuse your admiration to the ingenuity with which they so diversify the ideas that occupy them as to give you an impression of changing fantasy, but the fact is plain that the ideas are few. The Chinese artist is like a fiddler who with infinite skill should play infinite variations upon a single tune. Now, I happened upon a French doctor who had been in practice for many years in the city in which I then found myself, and he was a collector of porcelain, bronze, and embroidery. He took me to see his things. They were beautiful, but they were a trifle monotonous. I admired perfunctorily. Suddenly I came upon the fragment of a bust. But that is Greek, I said in surprise. Do you think so? I am glad to hear you say it. Head and arms were gone, and the statue, for such it had been, was broken off just above the waist, but there was a breastplate with a sun in the middle of it, and in relief Perseus killing the dragon. It was a fragment of no great importance, but it was Greek, and perhaps because I was surfeited with Chinese beauty it affected me strangely. It spoke in a tongue with which I was familiar, it rested my heart. I passed my hands over its age-worn surface with a delight I myself was surprised at. I was like a sailor who, wandering in a tropic sea, has known the lazy loveliness of coral islands and the splendors of the cities of the east, but finds himself once more in the dingy alleys of a channel port. It is cold and gray and sordid, but it is England. The doctor, he was a little bald man with gleaming eyes and an excitable manner, rubbed his hands. Do you know it was found within thirty miles of here, on this side of the Tibetan frontier? Found, I exclaimed, found where? Mon Dieu, in the ground. It had been buried for two thousand years. They found this and several fragments more, one or two complete statues, I believe, 
but they were broken up and only this remained. It was incredible that Greek statues should have been discovered in so remote a spot. But what is your explanation? I asked. I think this was the statue of Alexander, he said. By George! It was a thrill. Was it possible that one of the commanders of the Macedonian, after the expedition into India, had found his way into this mysterious corner of China, under the shadow of the mountains of Tibet? The doctor wanted to show me Manchu dresses, but I could not give them my attention. What bold adventurer was he who had penetrated so far towards the east to found a kingdom? There he had built a temple to Aphrodite, and a temple to Dionysus, and in the theatre actors had sung the Antigone, and in his halls at night bards had recited the Odyssey and he and his men listening may have felt themselves the peers of the old seaman and his followers. What magnificence did that stained fragment of marble call up, and what fabulous adventures! How long had the kingdom lasted, and what tragedy marked its fall? Ah, just then I could not look at Tibetan banners or Celadon cups, for I saw the Parthenon, severe and lovely, and beyond, serene, the Blue Aegean. One of the best. I could never remember his name, but whenever he was spoken of in the port he was always described as one of the best. He was a man of fifty, perhaps, thin and rather tall, dapper and well-dressed, with a small, neat head and sharp features. His blue eyes were good-natured and jovial behind his pince-nez. He was of a cheerful disposition, and he had a vein of banter which was not ineffective. He could turn out the sort of jokes that makes men standing at the club bar laugh heartily, and he could be agreeably malicious, but without ill-nature, about any member of the community who did not happen to be present. His humour was of the same nature as that of the comedian in a musical play. When they spoke of him they often said, you know, I wonder he never went on the stage. He'd have made a hit, one of the best. He was always ready to have a drink with you, and no sooner was your glass empty than he was prompt with the china phrase, Ready for the other half? But he did not drink more than was good for him. Oh, he's got his head screwed on his shoulders the right way, they said, one of the best. When the hat was passed round for some charitable object, he could always be counted on to give as much as any one else, and he was always ready to go in for a golf competition or a billiards tournament. He was a bachelor. Marriage is no use to a man who lives in China, he said. He has to send his wife away every summer, and then when the kids are beginning to be interesting they have to go home. It costs a deuce of a lot of money, and you get nothing out of it but he was always willing to do a good turn to any woman in the community. He was number one at Jardines, and he often had the power to make himself useful. He had been in China for thirty years, and he prided himself on not speaking a word of Chinese. He never went into the Chinese city. His comprador was Chinese, and some of the clerks, his boys, of course, and the chair coolies, but they were the only Chinese he had anything to do with, and quite enough, too. I hate the country, I hate the people, he said. As soon as I've saved enough money, I mean to clear out. He laughed. Do you know, last time I was home, I found everyone cracked over Chinese junk, pictures and porcelain and stuff. 
Don't talk to me about Chinese things, I said to him. I never want to see anything Chinese as long as I live. He turned to me. I'll tell you what, I don't believe I've got a single Chinese thing in my house. But if you wanted him to talk to you about London, he was prepared to do so by the hour. He knew all the musical comedies that had been played for twenty years, and at the distance of nine thousand miles he was able to keep up with the doings of Miss Lily Elsie and Miss Elsie Janice. He played the piano, and he had a pleasing voice. It required little persuasion to induce him to sit down and sing you the popular ditties he had heard when last he was at home. It was quite singular to me, the unfathomable frivolity of this grey-haired man. It was even a little uncanny. But people applauded him loudly when he finished. He's priceless, isn't he? they said. Oh, one of the best. End of section 18